Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everyone. This is Jade Alicia from Get Hard with Jade Alicia on Jay Scott's podcast, The Hook, the ultimate rock community podcast, where we talk old rock, new rock, and everything in between. Good evening, everybody. It's Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're staying safe, staying healthy. Hope you're getting by. It is a nice sunny day, at least when we're recording this. I don't know what it's going to be like when you hear it. But nevertheless, hope you're doing well. Hope all my listeners are finding you know their, their, their happy place. Like always, we're always here for you. Offering escape for you to listen about music talk new bands, legacy artists, and whatever we can talk about. I'd like to welcome our next guest is vocalist, singer, Mr. Robert Mason. How you doing, Robert? Pretty well. Uh, it's sunny here, too. You know, I mean, tough not to love Arizona right after the summer. Yeah, it's when it cools down, right? It's those days in the summer when it's like 120 degrees and, and, the, and the garbage cans are melting, right? Yeah, those are no fun. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, Corvettes. And remember, remember the old Pontiac Fiero? Yes. They were, they were like mostly plastic, I guess, exterior-wise, and they would actually get rubbery and not melt, but get really soft, and they, people would be out here stretching Fieros, you know, back in the day. But uh, yeah, man, it was a brutal summer, and to be home the entire time, or nearly the entire time, uh, is a different thing for me. Weird to be off the road. Yeah, because you are, you know, I mean, you're, you're you're a guy that's always on the road, always torn, whether it's doing stuff with Lynch Mob, Warrant, you know, any other projects you have. It's got to be difficult for you to kind of like just stare at the wall and be like, hey, I need, to, I need to find an outlet, an escape to do something here. Well, I don't see that very well. Yeah, I'm, I'm built for the road, as you said. Uh, being a touring musician for 30 plus years and before that played clubs and you know always written and kind of traveling around was my thing uh, I love being on the road obviously now a little bit older and longer in the tooth 
older and hopefully wiser, as they say. Uh, we've been doing pretty well in in the the new touring model. You know what I mean, Jay? Like a lot of bands, and I guess we're a nostalgia band now. Obviously, I'm in my fifties, as are the guys and other guys in Warren. Uh, and George is George is like ninety one. I think George just turned ninety one or ninety two, something like that. I bet George <laughs> didn't just job all the time. But you know. We, we do that thing where you get on airplanes. You're no longer in buses. Not us, anyway. It's much more sensible for us, in a lot of ways, every way, to get on mostly, I would say, 90-plus percent. It's just commercial air, aircraft. You know, I roll down to my airport, get on a plane. One or two planes later on where I need to be. We install ourselves in a hotel, and uh, then we go play our gigs, you know, maybe one, two, three, four in a row. And then fly home. So I'm home in my own bed a couple of days a week, and I'm in hotels a few days a week. And I mean, we keep that non-stop for the past 12 plus years I've been in Warrant, right up until February of this year. We'll get into all that. We'll we'll talk about you know the impact of COVID has on what you're doing, and you know what has an impact on rock and roll. But we always do start the same way every time we have a new guest on. Hook Rocks podcast, and that is the essence of the show. Just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or a performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? Uh, my earliest memories are singing, and I'm talking, you know, two years old. I'm, I'm dead serious when I say this. Singing two and three part harmony with my mom and dad to the radio in the car on long drives. And that's it's God's honest truth, right? So grew up in a family where my dad, uh, you know, music loving family, but my dad was a pretty talented singer, never really pursued it in that realm professionally, really for very, for very much time. You know, he wanted to married my mom, had us kids and became the traveling salesman, you know, regional sales guy, working dad. But we would take long car driving, and I think that's where I developed an affinity for automobiles and music. And the radio was your friend. You know, I was an only child. I'm the oldest. I was the only child for the first five years. And my mom and the radio and records were my best friends. So while my dad was working. Uh, so it was, it was probably the initial, the initial start of that. Uh, I understood harmony before I understood math and reading just you know talking and then then having favorite songs and singing so before i understood the theory of it i could do it and it was one of those weird things where you know my dad freaked out because i would repeat him say anything he said hard words or not sing songs and i could sing in key at an ex just i guess from what i'm told an extremely early age and i have those early memories uh but as far as being like in a band I think the first time you play a song, I took piano lessons, I took guitar for a little while. I never really took guitar lessons, but I taught myself guitar because I could read music uh, from from hating piano lessons. So my ear was always a little better than my want to be in school or have an instructor. So serious piano and keyboard lessons were not my thing. Figuring out songs on my own was my thing. And I guess the first time you do that, for people, you know, in front of parents, in front of relatives, and they clap, and you're like a little kid. You go, wow, all I have to do is sing or play a song, and I get applauded. I'm doing this forever. 
You know, it's kind of, maybe that's what threw me in. What about your influences? Like, what was, like, the, the moment you heard a song and you were like, wow, like, what is that? Like, what, you know, I want to do that. I mean, obviously, you were singing these harmonies with your family and everything, but what was the moment where, like, rock pulled you in, rock music pulled you in? Uh, don't laugh. Tom Jones. I, mean, I didn't get serious. I did not expect an answer, what? but that's but he's a great entertainer, right? Great entertainer and a bad singer in his prime. I don't mean foolish, but I mean in his prime at the time, he was a like to me he was like a cooler Elvis almost. I mean everybody looked, man. My dad listened to all that stuff. I grew up on Frank Sinatra and Elvis and Otis Redding and Sam Cooke and all the fifties doo stuff and then the Beatles and Stones and all that stuff, but I think I saw a television show. Would, would it have been like the Andy Williams show or something like that way, way back? My dad would sit me down and show me the Jackson 5 the first time they were on Andy Williams' show. Uh, and I saw Tom Jones. I see this guy, like, ladies just losing their minds for him, screaming. And he's singing with that growl in his voice and just like a total badass up there. You know, with like the super skinny 70s microphone, like those long, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And I remember looking at it going, do you do that? You could do that? And like, and people, once again, people applaud or people like that you do that. And that guy's job. Like he just sings. Like, cool. And people dig it. I'm going to do that. Like once again, I think I had, it was a combination of moments. Seeing kids at Madison Square Garden, seeing the who, seeing... Van Halen, uh, I guess, would have been Women and Children first, and then I, I, I heard Van Halen early, early on. And obviously, everybody's thinking about Van Halen right now because of Eddie, um, because of Edward, and I had met him a couple times through, through George, through Lynn, initially when I was first in Lynch Mob, but I went to see Van Halen several times as a kid back up East Coast, uh, Meadowlands and then the Garden. So, that was incredibly formative for me. And I think I always would go see concerts and have that, well, I don't want to be here. I want to be 30, 40, 50, 100 feet that way. I want to be up there doing that. And I think I would always leave a concert just absolutely euphoric in a desire to do that. Uh, you know, I, I got pushed into academia and sports. You know, your parents always want you to be well-rounded or, or whatever, maybe. Not everybody's parents, but mine did. But I always crept my way back into music and eventually just had that moment where I was like, well, I'm just going to do this. Like, hell or high water. No connections, no no nepotism, no family music business. You know, I'm just, I'm just going to start singing a rock band and writing songs and you know, eventually do this. So, that was it. I was always kind of the same way, you know, like... My parents always wanted me to be well-rounded, especially my mother, you know. And, you know, the rock and roll bug hit me at a, at a very early age. You know, I remember my, my grandfather was a piano player back in the days of the speakeasies in Chicago. So whenever I would stay overnight there a couple times a month, I would always be awoken by him playing the piano, his, his baby grand in the basement. So I always had that, you know, that connection with music and then... You know, Journey, Don't Stop Believing. I remember hearing that. I remember hearing the piano in the beginning. I'm like, oh, I know that instrument. 
And then that's what kind of connected me. But I always, always tried to incorporate music into everything I was doing, whether it was cutting the lawn, wearing headphones, whether it was, you know, studying, you know, with headphones on, you know, that probably the smartest thing to do, but I always enjoyed, enjoyed just, just the whole experience, you know, like knowing the sequencing of an album and knowing this song was the third song on this album and it was written by this. I was just so consumed by it at a very young age that, you know, it just always, you know, music has just been a part of my life from a very early age till now. It's just amazing how it offers that escape and that wonder and that journey for people. Well, that's exactly it. It's escape. It's escapism. It, it, if it helps put you in a better frame of mind, if it reminds you of a time in your life, if it helps you forget your problems, that's, that's kind of what I figure. Now that I've grown into it, uh, a little bit older guy, rather than just the young kid, you know, like striving to achieve this or do that or whatever, uh, you realize that you, I offer, I help to offer something that either makes people nostalgic for a time they like, forget a problem that they're having right now. You know, it's entertainment, makes people happy. I'm not hurting anybody. And I figured out a way to make myself happy by performing and, you know, that energy transfer back and forth. Like I'm, anybody who's, me, I'm, I don't exactly stare at my shoes while I sing. You know what I mean? I don't stand still. I, it's more of an athletic endeavor than than maybe just an art thing. Performing live, I always love frontmen who would just metaphorically grab an audience by the throat. And I mean, have them. You know, like, I was always really, really impressed by that. So I guess I try, I'm just a product of my influences you know so i tried to i try to be every captivating performer i've ever seen all you know rolled into one and hopefully it comes out you know sounding okay it also helps with expression too i mean obviously the artist the singer of the band or the guitar player you know has that outlet has that platform to be expressive and to you know write songs or perform songs that you know, that connect with the audience. And and for the audience, for a fan like myself, it also helps. And you mentioned, you know, whether you go through, you know, a sad moment, a happy moment, an angry moment, whatever it is, you can find a song that can connect with you with how you're feeling at that moment. And sometimes if you can't find the words, especially if you're younger, you know, and, and you may have trouble expressing yourself and finding your words, a song can connect with you and be able to do that. And you know, that's kind of the magic of songwriting is right. Yeah. Having everybody's had something where they go, they hear a song. It's almost a gateway into your, into your emotional core where you're, you hear a song and somehow the melody carries this lyric. And you go, wow, I've felt just like that. Or I am feeling just like this. You, you almost seek out and find a song that is a musical manifestation of your emotional you know, state at that more at that point in time, but that's yes, you're absolutely spot on. That's the connected tissue that makes me really happy doing what I do. I'm just super happy singing on my side of a mic at any time. I, I I enjoy just the act of doing that. Then you put an audience in, or you put people who listen to music or buy your records or whatever come to your shows. You connect with them; they connect with the music. It's 
it's really I'm not I'm not super super like spiritual or trippy you know like whatever not that I mock that at all but that's just not me I'm really pragmatic and practical but there's a definite energy that an audience gives you that fuels you further to a performance like man there's times when I it's like the adrenaline of uh, any sport or a car race or you know anything where you just feel like you have energy that you had no idea you had it's got to come from somewhere other than yourself or it's the adrenaline within yourself fueled by people that you know are there having a good time and I do selfishly like being the ringleader center of attention front guy you know I, I like that role now I wasn't always comfortable with it I am now and think about when married couples or couples talk about, oh, this is our song, right? You know, that's that's the ability to find that song that, that gives what you are or the relationship that you're in, you know, meaning and reflection and, you know, just the connection with the person you're with. And it's also, too, I mean, there's songs that remind me of memories from, you know, back in the day. I mean, there's songs that have the have the ability to make me smell, feel the moment I was in back when I was like 14, 15 years old. I mean, that's just incredible. I mean, we talked about Van Halen. David Lee Roth said something very poignant a few years ago that a song has the ability to be a time machine that immediately takes you back to memories of when you first heard that song and fell in love with that song. Oh, it's exactly that. that If you were not going to say that, I was going to say it's a time machine of sorts. And it's, it's funny that you're talking about like couples or friends or people are fond of things. It's not just my connection with an audience. It's the audience bond to each other. They become a unified thing. That's one of my greatest joys is the, the unifying of people for whatever purpose, whether it's just to put their phones up or to, or to put their fists up in the air, or, you know, put the, put, throw some metal up in the air. You know what I mean? Like throw the horns up and rock out together and sing along. That's my greatest goal, I think, during shows is not just to be the only singer. Like, I want everybody to do this and scream along and, you know, be as tired as, and sweaty as I will be after the, after the show. I mean, I've said it a lot, you know, I mean, I've said it on the mic, I've said it in interviews, like, I'm, if you're in the first few rows, you can get some of my sweat on you, you know, I I'm, I'm perfectly healthy and safe. I'm trying my best, but I often cut myself on guitars and microphones and smacking Steven cymbals around or, you know, rolling around on stage. I'm going to bleed a little up there too, probably. And this is part of it for me. It's, it's, a, it's an extremely intimate and then viscous experience. It's, it's kind of cool. I have to admit, highly recommend becoming a front man of a rock band if you can. It's kind of fun. We, we talked about briefly, you know, Eddie Van Halen passing a few days ago. Um, just an emotional moment for rock fans and musicians alike that we either influenced him or admired him from afar. Uh, you know, Van Halen was the gateway for me into rock and roll. The connection I had with Journey led to me listening to Van Halen 1. What was that right. moment when you heard of his passing, you know, are there any, you mentioned you met, met him a couple times. Are there any memories you can share about you with Eddie Van Halen? Uh, I mean, yeah. That's the thing is I didn't want to immediately go on social media and start making it about me and whatever. Uh, I, 
hearing about Ed Kaplan, uh, I was driving home from California. I just tracked the first eight songs of the next uh, End Machine record with Jeff Wilson at his studio in California. So I was driving through the desert on my way back to Arizona uh, the other day. Got home, threw my bags in, in the closet, and, you know, kind of halfway unpacked from being there for five, five or so days, I guess. And ignored my phone, put, turned my phone off. Because I had been on the phone during the drive. I decided to drive out. I never, you know, really drive that much. So figured I would do that, uh, that distance, you know. And uh, got home and ignored my phone for about almost an hour. And I know that sounds silly. It's like everybody's so connected to all the electronics these days. And I've just been, like you said, driving, I guess, around six, seven hours and got out of the car. And I went into my music room and I start playing, playing with the car. I guess I had got, oh, Sheptone just sent me some new strings. So I, I, I swapped strings out on one of my, uh, one of my PMPs, one of my touring guitars and, uh, was stretching them and everything. You know, that took a little while playing a little piano and, Checking uh, like snail mail, you know, went to my mailbox, and then I went to my phone again, and I had like a hundred texts because that's right when the news came out. Uh, I mean, I remember going to lacrosse practice as a uh, before my before my freshman year of high school, and sitting in some kid who was a junior, going to be a senior, he was. Uh, he had like a super badass, like 70 and a half Camaro. I'm a car freak too. So he, he actually had a bought this back east in 1978, I guess, 78, 39, whatever it was. And I was going to be going into high school. But during the summer before high school, I was going to lacrosse back. And I bummed a ride with one of my neighbors who was, you know, probably didn't want this little punk kid coming with him to lacrosse practice, but we were neighbors. So he had, uh, he had a Baldwin, he had a real Baldwin motion, 1970 and a half Z28 Camaro. Never forget it. I sat in the back seat on the hump. If you ever been in the back seat of Camaro, it's set up like two little narrow seats and a little hump in the middle of the transmission tunnel. Because I was the extra, you know, I was a little kid, skinny, or whatever, 12, 13 year old, and eight track player pushed in the eight track, and it was Van Halen one. That's the first time I've ever handled in my life. And we and to crank in this car, tearing ass to the high school to go to lacrosse practice. Uh, you know, no, none of us had ever heard anything like that before. And he's he had bought that eight track probably uh, I don't know, whatever weeks or a month right before that. So that was the first time I ever heard that. Yeah, I remember listening to Van Halen. My my mother was cleaning the house and I was home from school one day and my older brother had the album in his room and I had heard his friends talk about Van Halen like Van Halen this Van Halen that and I was probably seven or eight years old and I'm like I gotta hear this I gotta hear so she was involved in her cleaning I went in his room I grabbed the album I went to the living room with the where the turntable was I took off the Barry Manilow record and I put the Van Halen album on the turntable, and I, I, I remember to put headphones on because I, I felt, even at that early age, this is probably something my mother won't like me listening to. So so I put it on, and I heard Running With The Devil, 
And I was like, wow, this is incredible. And then I heard eruption and I couldn't, I thought something was wrong with the, with the stereo, with the turntable, you know, because I was right. like, I was like, I never, what, what is this? What, like, why does it sound like this? This is incredible, but this is, it's probably not supposed to sound like this. And it did. Cause I kept playing it back, you know, over and over again. And I was just mesmerized and, you know, just the impact that he had on, music especially the, during the time that I was growing up I I have a lot of you know discussions about the greatest debut album and it always comes down between Van Halen 1 and Appetite for Destruction and both are phenomenal yeah, I mean, phenomenal records you know right exactly like the, I'll go back a little further you know like first Black Sabbath or first Led Zeppelin like the, of the era before that where you just are knocked off your feet by the way a band sounds. And that's the kind of thing, you're right, Appetite, immense. Van Allen 1, immense. It's, uh, I mean, Ed was our, our generation's like Hendrix meets Mozart. I mean, self-taught, musical family, figured it on his own, was doing something that very few people were doing, and he was the first one to really bring attention to all of the you know, that, like the tapping, all that kind of stuff, that style of playing. I mean, he was, and he was always, always sounded that way. Like he, once he hit the scene and we all heard of him, the guy was cast, like Eddie was Eddie. He was just that guy. I mean, granted, you heard cha- little changes in musical growth and things like that, but, but just, he was, his style and his, amazing people don't, like, his amazing rhythm playing. His amazing rhythm playing. And, you know, you get attention to your solo technique, but for people, you know, for people, the musicians to dig in and go, good God, that's like infallible. He's got such a really cool take on rhythm guitar. That's, you know, that inimitable Van Halen sound right there. And yeah, we were all freaked out by when we first heard it. I guess I, that record came out February of 78. Yeah. And I'm talking about summer of 78. I didn't hear it. I was absorbed in different stuff, like through that whole period. Whenever we do have those discussions, you know, one of the things that I always feel about Van Halen 1 versus Appetite for Destruction or versus, the, you, know, the, you know, the first Boston album is after that record, it changed the face of music. It, it, you know, guitars sounded differently and, you know, it it was just, it was just different. We're not, not to take away anything else from those other albums like Boston or, or Guns N' Roses. And, you know, I think there was some validity to to changing music with Led Zeppelin one and Black Sabbath. But I think at that point, anything after Van Halen one was a result of that record where I don't know if you could say that about any other debut album after that was ever, you know, after, after that was released. Yeah, they, they definitely made their mark and there was a lot to follow that was, that was influenced or in some way catalyzed by it. You're right. I, I would have to agree with that. But then, you know, it was, or I guess they, they really became singular because it was so unique. It was, and not so unique as it It was unique. And that's the thing is, anytime something comes out that's either a shot in the arm or for breath of fresh air or kind of like appetite was, 
before, like that Van Halen record, where there's nothing like it, and all of a sudden it exists. It absolutely stands out as a singular achievement. Do you have any, you know, memories of being, you know, of meeting him or talking with him? Uh, first time I spoke to him, George Lynch and I were at George's house in Scottsdale writing songs for what would be the Lynch Mob record, and I think we took a break and we were hanging out in the pool. And I answered the phone when it rang, and it was Ed. <laughs> it's funny, like, I had no idea, you know. It was like his house phone, his landline. George's underwater in the pool and the phone rings and I'm like, Oh, I'm up, I'll get it, you know? And I and I get the Hey is George there? And I'm like, uh yeah, he's in the pool. Hold on. He's like, Tell him it's Ed. Like that. <laughs> and I'm like, as soon as I hear the word Ed out of Eddie's mouth, I'm like, Oh fuck, I'm fucking Eddie Van Halen right now. Like I'm, you know, twenty six, I'm brand new in Lynch Mob, we're sitting writing songs and I'm like, Eddie Van Halen calls your house, George, uh, what do I do? Do I freak out or I just go, yeah, Ed, hold on, hold on a second, Ed. I'll, I, I think I can get George for you. So, And it was just because they were in town and he was inviting us actually out to the show that, uh, either that night or the next night. So that would have been, whatever, I was 91. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, our paths crossed a couple of times. Uh, Michael Anthony and I know each other pretty well, I would say. Uh, so being around that camp a couple of times, I met Dan lunch times. So yeah, I mean, I'm, like I said, seeing Eddie and Van Halen live several times growing up and then having a couple of, you know, quick brushes with them. I wouldn't say we were friends or friendly or anything, but you know, it was always super cool to me. It was very nice. It's like, you know, can 2020 get any worse, right? You know, it's like, you know, we, we, <laughs> we go, would somebody please bring back the murder hornet? Can we, can we, <laughs> is there a way we can? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like you're you're watching the news and you see like you know hurricanes in Florida, and you're and you just kind of like shrug your shoulders, like, dude, we're living through a pandemic. Right. That's like nothing right now. <laughs> it's it's crazy. Right, exactly. You know, it's like any other year would be big news. It'd be oh my god, this is gonna devastate people's lives and everyone's just kind of like we're just dealing with a whole big shit sandwich this year you know yeah it's uh it is exactly that and you know it's a cyclical thing the weather i believe is a cyclical thing the you know it's not like the world is coming to an end right now but yeah man this is a this is a down year with a whole bunch of stuff going on a whole bunch of stuff going on yeah it is but there's good things too i mean i'm i'm home i'm playing more guitar than ever i sit and I'm trying not to just hang out and wallow, you know, right. Like I said, we're writing and uh, recording a new end machine record to follow up to the one we did last year or year, year and a half ago. Uh, it's a little bit of a bummer personally with the warrant guys, cause it was the 30th anniversary of dirty rotten, uh, last year. And we had a monster here 2019 this year was, uh, was all on schedule to be the 30th anniversary cherry pie. So if anybody knows anything about the band, it was the band's biggest record and new staging and a new set and all sorts of stuff. And we're all jacked up, you know, beyond belief to go and have a really fun, you know, we were going to do this for a year and a half, but I mean, 30 years, that's a great achievement for those guys. that people still want to hear this record and I'm proud to do it. 
And then this happened. So we're like, okay, what we do is not allowed right now. We're just intending to pick up right where we left off in February as soon as we're able and make a monstrous, massive America and every place else that'll let us have, that'll have us. You know, to do the 30th anniversary of the Cherry Record. Uh, and we'll just, we'll wait and see, you know. I'm cautiously optimistic, waiting and seeing. I'm really excited about the new End Machine album. The first one that was released last year was just an amazing record. Um, oh, well, thank you. Appreciate it. We're, we're proud of it. So, yeah, you, you know, know it, it, it was just it was just a great, great album. And isn't Mick Brown's brother playing on the album? Yeah, Mick's very young brother Steve is an amazing drummer. Played Oleander and a bunch of like '90s and 2000s kind of bands. He's a NorCal guy. And when Mick was, you know, dead set on retiring, we just figured we'd ask, uh, ask Steve, and he, and he wanted to do it. In fact, Mick called me a few weeks ago, and in standard Mick Brown style, I was like, no, I retired. And I'm like, then this thing happens, and I can't go anywhere. You know, and it, it, that was half of it. The other half how excited he was that, uh, that Steve was going to play on the End Machine record. So we're all looking forward to it. It sounds stiller so far I and mean, I can tell you personally Jeff and I just neither of us had been anywhere and we were you know COVID and symptom free and we pulled ourselves up in Jeff's uh, super secret awesome studio in north of LA and I just tracked the first eight songs did two a days you know it's like two songs a day for four days and I've got eight, eight of the eleven done for the record and uh, it sounded pretty massive I mean it's hard not to have some cool factors going on with those guys, and they are half of the legendary docking, you know, the formula, everything. So, uh, it's, I think the second record, I'm making a purposeful statement, and in the writing, everything, I, we, I wanted not to be so experimental like we did on the first record. I really wanted to dig in, and because I'm a docking fan, I have these two guys bass and guitar from that band let's explore maybe a couple more I'm not it, it doesn't sound dated or period or vintage but it's kind of like I really wanted to make and I know George and Jeff did as well maybe not so esoteric and experimental with the song ideas you know we had a lot of it was very cool and I liked it but it was it was us really stretching our legs. I think we're going to get back to a little more meat and potatoes on this record. And uh, what we, I think what we heard as far as feedback was, man, we really love and wanted to hear a little more of like the, you know, Lynch Mob Dawkins thing, not in a dated way, but in a, what would, what would all that sound like now as new music? So I think we're sort of tapping into that. And the results are pretty cool so far. I mean, we're we're very happy with it so far. We'll we'll see. Opinions vary, man. We'll see what happens. That's exciting. When when do you anticipate it uh, coming out? Uh, mid next year. Okay. Uh, we're probably going to be done with the recording and turn it in for mix, final mix and master. Oh, I don't know middle or end of November December maybe so it'll take a little while and 
Frontiers Records has a plan and a schedule and other artists that they need to release, you know. So it'll probably be mid next year or in the first quarter, maybe. I am definitely looking forward to that. I haven't, yeah. you know, I haven't spoken at him. I haven't spoken to anybody at the label in months, so I don't know what their actual plan is, but I'm sure that will all be revealed shortly. When you're writing during a time like this, you know, and you're in your home more than you normally are, do you find it to be more of a challenge to be creative? I mean, you know, you usually when people are, you know, creating music, they're living their life, they're doing, they're they're experiencing different things, and when that kind of goes away, something difficult to do that. And what was your what's your take on it? How, how did you feel about that? I definitely go through hot and cold spells. I think that's just part of the, the muse and the, the writing process for certain people. And I definitely fall victim to it. It's not like I fall into monster depression or then euphoria, you know, like panic or anything. But you're right. When you're traveling and touring, like I was talking about earlier, I'm in airports, I'm walking through a hotel, you know, you meet so many people at shows and meet and greets and all that. To be removed from that abruptly and all of a sudden, Definitely, for the first couple of months, i got to be honest, it stifled me creatively. And then I just, I started with music, not necessarily with, with lyrics, uh, and just started playing more. Like, I'm home, I've got a nice collection of instruments here, and I'm a quiet house and no place to go and no bag, no need to pack a bag or anything. I'm just going to dig in. And, and granted, I'm a singer, but I'm also a songwriter. I learned on a couple of instruments. I'm not half, I'm not half bad. You know, I've always just been in bands with great guitar players and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I sit and, you know, fall in love with a few guitars again and then play piano every morning for, you know, an hour or two. So it's not like I'm getting great at it, but, and I, I'm, I'm sort of heavy handed on both, but I like them as tools to write songs. And then when we came to write this, End Machine record, I guess I got a slow start. I'll be honest with you. Those guys know that so they say the same thing. I kind of had a slow start for the first couple of months of this year once we were home. And yeah, you know, not a pity party or anything. I just wasn't, I wasn't just immediately swept up in the creative muse, as they say. Uh, during the rest of the you know past bunch of years, I write lyrics on planes. Buried in my Mac or my phone, you know, writing down some typing, whatever I have to do to type down notes. I walk through airports and see people and imagine them as like I, I create stories for them. And then that, or maybe I'll read a book or I'll see something and I'll watch a movie and like, oh, maybe think of this little twist of phrase or some sort of lyrical thing. And uh, not having done that on the road, it definitely slowed me down a little bit. Full speed ahead. Uh, we've been George and Jeff and I have been doing several hour long Zoom meetings where we throw song ideas around, and that really helps to uh, kickstart me and come up with a bunch of lyrics for these. And George as well. George actually wanted to be involved, and you know he'll tell everybody he's not much of a singer, but he'll like I'll get a message on my phone, a text message on my phone, and the audience will get. Hey, Robert, I, um, I got this idea. And then he'll like hum it out to me or play it on guitar and, you know, and then send me a bunch of 
just random words, not really that fit into lyrics. Just what if like what if this? What if that? You know. And every once in a while, I totally give it up to George. He's he's had a couple of little like starter spark ideas where I go, ooh, okay, and then I just write a ream of lyrics about you know in that vein. And then we all get together and you know arm wrestle over what a song's going to be about or what we. It's been a cool process. It's different, but it's been a cool process. I uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing George earlier this year, and we were talking about, you know, he was joking around, but he was like, I should release like a box set of all my ideas that are on my phone and just release that, like, <laughs> like 30 seconds of this and a minute of that. And I'm like, that's, I would actually talk buy that. <laughs> talk about Mr. Scary. His brain sometimes is a scary place to be. I'm he, sure just like he says about mine, because, I mean, I come up with some twisted stuff, too, man. It's pretty funny. As we move forward into 2021, you know, with still a lot of unknown, still a lot of what's going to happen, where do you feel or what do you feel is, is going on right now with the state of rock and roll? I mean, we talk about this a lot on this podcast about I, – I actually believe that 2020 had a lot of momentum – going coming in from 2019 and i think you know whether it's a new band or artists releasing new material i felt this was going to be a big year for rock and roll and obviously everything had to be put on pause but when you look at the landscape of of rock music struggling with relevancy meaning you know not that it's dead it's just not at the forefront as it as it was in the past and now you have the concern about smaller venues smaller theaters across the country not being able to stay open you, you know, where, where, where do you think this is all going? I, I tend to believe that it's going to have a huge resurgence because rock and roll has always relied on the angst of youth. And there's nothing more, you know, that, that feeds into the angst of young people than being, you know, staying home, doing nothing and doing the same thing every day. And I think that's a, a recipe for success for rock music because young people want to latch on to that kind of, you know, anti-establishment, rock-and-roll type of attitude. What do you think? Well, right. It's, it's always been about expression of rebellion or the need to celebrate. So I think we're going to have both of those. I'm similarly minded to you in that when everyone feels whatever normal is, you know, or, or even just the first little bit, little glimpses of, hey, we can we can go here, we can see a concert, or we can, you know, there's a new band out, or, you know, whatever. Uh, I think people are going to really embrace it and go at it with even more fervor than usual because of being cooped up, like you said. And everybody, the whole industry, the film industry, too, like a lot of stuff has just been so stifled by this. Uh, and it's, I think it's a necessary component of society that people have an outlet. Like we were talking about earlier, nostalgia outlet or, or wow, this just came out and this is killer. Let's go, they're going to be on, you know, the fans going to be on Saturday Night Live two weeks from now and then they're going to be in our town a month from now. We got to go see them, you know. There's still that visceral need, I think, for live music. Even in this technological age, it might not be, now I'm not, clearly I'm in my 50s. I'm not in my I'm not an adolescent or a teen or in my early 20s or anything. So 
I'm not going to profess to know exactly how they feel. But wouldn't it be cool if there were new bands that reinterpreted filtered through their eyes and their experiences in their society what rock is and has another little burst? You know, what if there could be a new Van Halen? Not, not sound like Van Halen, but a new thing. And every once in a while, a band comes along and does that. There was a time when rock was the, was the pop music. Uh, that's not now. There's other stuff. But it doesn't mean that it can't be re-energized and come through, like I said, filtered through young people. And there'll be a lot of people still are even you know, younger and older that still want to come see us and cheap trick and, you know, every, other bands that are just good old fun American rock bands. I see it. With- I'll be very happy to do a show the second they tell me it's okay. <laughs> I see with my 15-year-old son, I, I've told this story before, there's this new band called South of Eden that just came out. They're from Columbus, Ohio. Amazing new band. And him and his friends, you know, are, are, are like the night before it's supposed to be released on a Friday, they're like all communicating on social media ready for this EP to drop. And yeah. it was like, me standing in line at a at a record store at midnight when the new releases came out when I was growing up, and I thought that was awesome. So it, so it does still exist. Yeah, so it still exists. And that's great. I don't think people have changed that much. No, the world has changed an immense amount, but people still need. Like I said, that there's still that need societally for those kind of moments. That's so cool that you can vicariously experience and enjoy that again the eyes of your 15-year-old kid. Man, that, that gives me hope. I mean, you know, I might, do I think I'm going to have some amazing success with the youth of America? No, I don't connect. I shouldn't be able to connect with the youth of America unless I do it by dumb luck. You know, because I'm not that kid. So, it's just I'm, great. I'm glad, though. Yeah. I'm glad, though, for the world that that can still exist. I was excited too because I was just like, "What are you? What are you doing?" He's like, "Oh, me and my friends were on we're on Snapchat. We're just talking about the new album that's going to drop in like ten minutes." <laughs> and I'm like, "I'm like, wow, that's really cool. You know, that's that's what like that's what kids should be doing. Getting excited about that, having that wonder about new rock, new rock music, and 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 being excited about it and anticipating it." And you having that again, I mean, because the world is, everything is so accessible right now for young kids, right? Everything is, you can oh, just, exactly. you know, and to see that where they're, where they're actually like, oh, I'll just get it tomorrow. I'll just, you know, they wanted to hear it. They wanted to be one of the first, you know, people to hear it, which I thought was just awesome to see that. Right. Well, these, these days, you know, what it was back when we were kids, somebody would have a a cassette or an album or whatever and bring it to school. I'm like, dude, I heard this. Oh my God, you have to get it. And then it was, you know, you had to wait to see them on Midnight Special or Saturday Night Live or whatever or have them come to your town or, you know, you hear the song on radio, you'd look at an album or, I mean, God forbid the cassette writing was so small. You know, you unfold the gatefold, you go like try to read all the liner notes. When I was younger and my eyes were better, maybe that didn't bother me so much. But uh, 
I was a voracious liner note reader, learning everybody's publishing company, reading all the lyrics, all the production stuff, all the thank yous, you know? And it's kind of like when I, when I was able to finally do that myself, it was a really validating thing. Like, I have a record coming out. Oh, I need I can thank people. I got my endorsers. So I can talk about, I can write all the lyrics out, then they're going to be printed on the record, you know? Those are little milestones, but that was what we used to do as, as kids. Now all they do is communicate with each other through their social media platforms, and it's the same thing. It's just the modern version of it. Right, yeah. I, I just, I also feel it has a lot to do with the movie The Dirt, you know, the Motley Crue movie, because when I talk to my son and his friends, they've all seen it, Right. They've all yeah. seen it, and it's like the fast times at Ridgemont High of their generation. And you know, <laughs> yeah, on one on one hand, you're like, wow, it's like, it's on the other hand, I'm like, that's awesome parenting right there. That's very good for you. It's a history. It's like it's, it's sensationalized, of course, but it's right. But it's just, I mean, if you read the, you know, there's a recent article in Forbes magazine about the demographic that was buying Motley Crue's music and merchandise prior to that movie. And it was over 35 before. And now the majority is under 30 that's buying their music and merchandise. And, and the young kids, albeit, there, you know, there's some, there's some things in that movie when they, you know, when he told me that he saw it, I'm like, all right, well, you know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Pandora's box has been open now. <laughs> yeah. So. But they're, but I mean, that's like, I mean, they wanted to go, him and his friends wanted to go see them and tour this past summer. And yeah, I mean, they're, a, they're now considered classic rock, you know, believe it or not. But if that's what it took to open the door for young kids to now listening to their own bands in their own rock bands with their generation, that's awesome. That's great. Oh, yeah. I, I highly applaud that and agree. Other than the end machine, got anything else going on? I mean, I know you're kind of waiting in limbo with the warrant tour. Any other projects you can talk about? Uh, it's funny that that's where this has really put a hold on. I used to fly out to Nashville and go write with a bunch of country writers or, you know, other people that just want to be creative. Uh, I used to do that a couple, three times a year. Uh, I haven't done that. Although I just spoke to some friends who live in, in, in Nashville and in the country world and all around there. We're all chomping at the bit. It's like, as soon as you can get out here, man, come out here and, you know, hang out for a week and we'll just write songs all day. Uh, and I had done some, some writing for other people, some sessions, sang a song last year for a Cirque show in Vegas uh, through a really good friend of mine that does monster, like, feature films and stuff. He just had to have, you know, happen to have a hookup and, thought of me and said, hey, man, can you sing a song? I'm like, yeah, yeah. When? I'm like, oh, tomorrow or Thursday or whatever. Just get on a plane and get here. So, But yeah, our industry is uh, it's slowed down a lot. Uh, like I said, I'm just looking forward to starting up the 30th anniversary Cherry Pie Tour and really just letting everybody know that we're, we're still around. And happy to play shows for people that want to come out and have fun, sing along, experience it. Any, uh, any chance of a, uh, of a new big cock record coming out? <laughs> David and I obviously still stay in touch. He lives in, uh, in the Phoenix area. So 
that we talk or text or, you know, email pretty regularly. I don't think so. I think we've all kind of, you know, it's, it's with the Austin Powers, that train has sailed. I line. love, the, I love know, those kinda, records. Oh, we have fun. I appreciate that. We had fun. That's, that's Dave's brainchild. He brought me into that. You know, doing those three records is kind of fun. We always kind of toy with what would we do on a fourth one. But uh, I don't know. I, I don't foresee that as something I could say, yeah, who knows? I, I, I don't actually think we'll do one, but you'd never want to say never, would you? It's just more wishful thinking on my on my end because I just like I said I love those three albums, and uh, you know I just just so powerful. I mean, what I remember about those records and when I listen to them is just it's so much just dirtiness and sleaziness and power. You know, it's just it's just good time rock and roll, and a completely DIY recorded in our housing environment. Uh, marketed ourselves, pushed ourselves, no label, no, you know, no big machine behind it. And just by virtue of taking advantage of at that time, that was like, wow, we put our first record out before the iPhone existed, uh, the first smartphone. So you had, what did we have? We had Facebook, we had MySpace, and we had, you know, the, the internet to be able to put a website up. Uh, but being able to do that and make videos for YouTube and just give them to our friends, get a few songs on radio and play a few shows. I mean, we played Rock, Oklahoma in 07, I guess, or 08, 08. So really weird. Fun to make those records up. Fun to listen to. Thank you again. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you again, Robert, for doing this. You've been a great guest. I love the conversation. Uh, look forward to the end machine. Look forward to you guys coming through Chicago next year with Warrant. Um, yeah, for sure. It'll be uh, definitely exciting to see some live shows again. Yeah, we'll be very happy to. Uh, make sure you let me know. I'm easier to find. You know, come out. Uh, come out. It'll be it'll be good to actually be in person with humans. I'm looking and forward enjoy to all it. of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciate. I really appreciate the time. Uh, it's good chatting with you. Well, thanks again, Robert. Once again, everybody, that's Robert Mason from Warrant, Lynch Mob, The M Machine. I'm Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Take care. We'll talk again soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.